Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I am joined by William Cook, who is a curatorial assistant at the Robert Menzies Institute and has spent the last almost 18 months working on the Menzies Collection here at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Will. Thank you very much for having me, Georgina, and what a great journey it's been. Absolutely, <laughs> a journey indeed. So, Will... We obviously know quite a bit about the Menzies collection. You you would know more than almost anyone, I guess, aside from Robert Menzies himself about the collection, having spent so long with all those wonderful books. But tell me, how did the university end up with Robert Menzies' books? I don't know if it was always in the back of his mind to give it to the University of Melbourne, but certainly by the time he got into his later age, it was in 1976, where he came to an agreement with the Bailieu that he would give his entire personal book collection, comprising of his books from his house in Haverbrack Avenue and his office, and he would give the entire collection to the Bailieu under three reasonably interesting conditions, all quite brief, but also quite strict. One was that the collection remain intact. Two was that the collection all be housed in one room. And three, was that it be used as a general reference collection? Now, this term, a general reference collection, is quite an interesting one because it can mean a few different things to different people. But I think it really is, as it sounds, a general reference collection in the sense that this collection is quite holistic. It's not particularly on politics or history. It actually really covers everything. It covers art. It covers architecture. It covers science. It covers poetry, literature, history, religion, anything you can really think of, and it's there. It sort of provide the works to any student, at the time at least, who wanted to have a well-rounded education. And that's the important context here, isn't it? So Robert Menzies gives his personal library to the university in the 70s, a sort of a culmination of a long life of learning and reading And this was a time pre-internet, so that was his reference collection. That was what he learnt from, where he was able to pick up ideas, quotations, entertain himself. This was it, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it provided everything. And I think the value have kept very well to their promises. But of course, there is the difficulty with it, it being a general reference collection I think given the items, which I'm sure we'll shortly discuss, but you wouldn't really expect to have inscribed items from Churchill just free for the students to pick up off the shelves. It would be quite a treat (laughs) if you discovered that, just browsing the shelves Uh, um, in the bailey. Certainly it is a general reference in the sense that everyone, and we're working towards making this more and more accessible, but everyone can actually go to the special reading room and look at all of these books and see his inscriptions and I think people often don't realise that they can view the books for themselves. They don't need me to show them. (laughs) I'm in the Lee Scott room itself. But yes, it is really interesting in that sense. And I've often wondered with this general reference idea of, as you say, not having the internet, I wondered if any of the books he's bought, especially in the later years, he's actually had this idea of it being a general reference collection and 
having the view to have it as a collection which stands on its own two feet, whether he's bought them with that specifically in mind. But my assessment would rather be giving it to the value as perhaps an afterthought and that Menzies was actually directly engaged with all of the books in the collection in his own time. I don't think there's many items bought because he thinks he needs to fill out a particular area of interest which he wasn't engaged in, which other people might be interested in. I think he was so well read that these are all areas that truly did interest him and he would read about. And so that leads to my next question, Will. What is the significance of this collection? So there are lots of collections around Australia and the world which are collections of papers of Robert Menzies left his papers to the National Library, which is there to this day, and many of them have been digitised thanks to the amazing efforts of the Trove project. But a collection of your books, of your personal library, what does that tell us about the person? And in this case, Robert Menzies. Well, I guess at the outset, the point to note, part of the value of this collection and and making it more accessible is that this project has not been done so far. And it is valuable in that sense. And I know that similar things have been done for Howard and other prime ministers from Labor. But the collection itself, the sheer size of it. Oh, yes. And it's important to note how big it is. Well, the sheer size of it is... I think previous estimates were in excess of 4,000. I approached closer to 4,700. We should note, it's not just books. There are all sorts of items. There are photo albums. There are student journals. There are student magazines. There are little artefacts. There are a whole range of items. It's not just books, but just to sort of paint a picture, it fills the entire Lee Scott room, which is... The first room in the Bailey Library, as you go up the top of the stairs, might be a bit off with my estimates, but the dimensions, I suggest, be something around 25 metres by about four or five, maybe six. But there are 21 shelves in there, and there would be roughly approaching 200 books on each shelf. So you can just imagine, it's quite a beautiful room. It overlooks the South Lawn. It used to be used as a conference room and for little student workshops, but sadly that hasn't been done in recent times for obvious reasons, but it's just quite shocking when you see it. And I'd be very surprised if any other prime minister had a library which even approached this size. In terms of its value in that sense, there are clear things that are valuable. First of all, there are the inscriptions. There are inscriptions from all sorts of contemporaries. And of course, there are his dear friends, and his political contemporaries, and there are leading world figures. It's very easy to name drop when you're looking at the Menzies collection. But in terms of its value in this sense, it is very important to see who Menzies has built a connection with over the years, and at what particular time he was reading what particular thing. But there is also value in the collection being intact and being whole, and we can draw conclusions from the collection holistically as well, given the way it's been preserved. And the condition is largely quite stunning. There are books from wartime years which are still in beautiful condition, which were tended to be printed on cheap paper and so on. But there is any number of research purposes you could use for the collection. I think it would be particularly valuable for PhD students and students in undergraduate research subjects in the Australian history area because it's a primary source itself because many of the books are highlighted extensively, annotated by Menzies. So you can really get a direct insight into the way he was thinking. And then by looking at 
the collection and the contents there and you can see what influenced Menzies. Particularly if you look at the books he's bought before the 1930s and so on, you can really see what has influenced him and shaped his worldview. And I think that is something that can be, as any number of PhDs, <laughs> can, can be a, yeah. You've got a list. If anyone's, anyone's listening to this podcast and would like to do a PhD on <laughs> Will Cook has a list of topics he'd like to cover. <laughs> Will, I thought it would be interesting to understand what is in the collection. As we've said, we've spent much time with these books. So you've developed a kind of a series of themes that you've observed in this collection. So what are these books? Well, as a general reference collection, there are quite a number of themes, as you would imagine. And sort of one of the interesting points which ties in with this question is how is the collection ordered? Because I remember when I first went in there, I didn't really understand how it was structured or what's going on because you can sort of spot a couple of different themes, but you're not really sure. But I think more or less by the time I went through the collection, I sort of identified the way it was running. And it's important to note that the collection is still in the exact same order that means he's had it in his own house and at his office. And we can still find any book in the collection and know where he had it in his bedroom, for example. But it was obviously very careful when I went through them all to make sure they all stayed in the exact same yes. order because that's part of the history of the collection <laughs> in do. itself. But, you weren't but, reordering them. Uh, because <laughs> of the Jewish decimal system. <laughs> Chronological order. <laughs> but it starts off primarily with legal texts, I would say. That's the first theme which emerges. The interesting thing about the legal texts is that they're not purely limited. When I think of barristers in their chambers, they often have libraries, but the legal books they usually have are limited to principles drawn out from case law. And usually they're sort of ornamental, let's say. But in Menti's collection, the clear thing that you notice is that this is not just a legal collection related to Australian law, but rather global law. Of course, there are books on Australian law, but you quickly noticed his interest in law from the UK, Canada, France, even Roman law features... Japanese law features, Indian law features. And is there an indication why he was interested in Japanese law, for example, Indian law? Well, Indian law was actually a gift. So it's probably not quite fair to say that Menzi <laughs> sought out. Right. <laughs> but the Japanese law, I believe that's Japanese constitutional law he was looking at. And I think that's from the early 50s from memory. And that was quite controversial at the time. I think it sort of went in line with Menzi's approach to a lot of things. While perhaps they were quite foreign to him, he still wanted to have an understanding of how all of the countries were doing things. As a law graduate, Georgina, you know, the French law is obviously so foreign to Australian law. Nevertheless, carries very interesting ideas. And another theme which emerges in this legal collection is that there's a significant amount of jurisprudence and legal theory. So it's really going beyond the practical application of law, but really sort of the meaning of law and also all sorts of issues such as the separation of powers feature a lot and a lot of the history of the law. So he really was passionate about the law and its role in society. And so there is at least two shelves, I would say. One particular item which I found quite stunning within there is the legal opinions of Menzies, which he's bound, I think it's from the years 28, I believe. He has a collection of all his legal advice that he's provided as barrister to the various solicitors who've requested his opinion. 
And he's bound them in a series of four leather-bound books. And I kind of think that's interesting. It occurs quite a bit because these are all typed out and bound together beautifully. But it occurs a few times with Menti's personal items that you sort of get this feeling that he thought he was destined for greatness. Right. (laughs) That he thought it would be well worth finding copies of his legal opinions because others would be interested in perhaps... Well, like down the track, I'm sure he thought... Very helpful from our perspective. And that's the same with the student notebooks, which one of the most lovely items in the collection is roughly 25 beautifully written and well-preserved notebooks of all of his studies he undertook at the law school. He's clearly wrote what subject it is, his name, his name is very distinctive, his handwriting. It's lucky because Menzi's handwriting is largely quite easy to read. You can occasionally note that he's probably written something in a bit of a hurry, but it wasn't... A bit of a lost art. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, Will, the law was obviously one of his great passions and he has significant friendships and mentors with notable lawyers in Australia and US as well. Felix Frankfurter comes to mind. He's one of his very close friends. And, of course, so Owen Dixon was his significant mentor. There are books from Owen Dixon in the collection. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. So his collection, though, goes on to feature quite significantly a lot of biography, doesn't it? Your biography... is obviously a great interest of his. Yes, and you can split these into a number of areas, but particularly from political perspective, these ones feature early on in the collection. I guess what struck me, and again it goes to this way of thinking about things from points of view that weren't necessarily aligning with his own, What sort of struck me is that while you have people featuring such as John Stuart Mill and Edward Burke and these people who were really driving liberal thought, I've sort of in a way found it more interesting as to the books he had with close connections to the Labour Party. Now, for instance, Arthur Corwell's three volumes of Labour's role in modern society from 63 and Be Just and Fear Not from 73, and the latter being inscribed for my good friend R.G. Menzies. So I know it's well acknowledged that Menzies made good relations with both sides of the house, but that was genuine. You can sense that they might have said in public some nasty things about each other, but I think there really was a strong connection there. And that would go by extension to all sorts of other Labour texts. There's books on the Whitlam Venture, biography on Gough Whitlam. Interestingly, that one contains the compliments card of B.A. Santa Maria. Oh, right. Obviously, the controversial journalist. I quite liked this one, Decades of Decision, Compendium of Modern History by Barry Jones, who's actually one of the few people who's given a book to Menzies who's still alive in the collection. And he was the former Minister for Science in the Hawke government. And he's got quite a nice inscription to Sir Robert Menzies, Prime Minister for more than half the lifetime of the author in Barry Jones in 1965. Then there's Tumult and the, and the Shouting by Frank McManus. So again, inscribed by the former senator of the Democratic Labour Party. Very warmly inscribed yet again to Sir Robert Menzies, the most eminent practitioner of the art of politics in my time. Frank McManus, March 1977. <laughs> there's books from Evert. Then there's books by Billy Hughes, Case for Labour. And interestingly enough, Menzies writes the introduction for the reprint in 1970. Presumably not making the case for Labour himself. (laughs) Would have had some important observations. 
So what about Menzies' personal interests? He had professional interests, intellectual interests, but he was a human being like all of us and enjoyed being entertained and, and sometimes that might have been through sport or literature. But you've noticed there was quite a significant collection of books that spoke to his personal interests. Yes, it has to be general reference, but I think the collection on cricket within the collection in particular is perhaps might be one of the best general reference cricket collections in Australia. <laughs> and not to, to mention that I believe he's also given some cricket books to the MCC. So I had to think what the entire collection looks like. No. But the cricket collection actually really fascinated me because I think everyone knew that Menzies was keen on cricket but I don't think people really appreciate that he was deeply passionate about it. Like it was contemplative, almost sort of philosophical way. I think by my calculations, there were roughly 300 books on cricket. And this includes cricket, almanacs, <laughs> strategy and literature. I didn't never realise cricket literature was a big thing. And even cricket humour. So it's really quite stunning how, from glimpsing through a few pages, I found it a bit hard to sort of connect with them. But it actually was <laughs> it actually was a, a very big thing at the time because, of course, they couldn't just watch the replay on television. They needed someone to go through ball by ball what was happening. And people would really relive the games in this way. But the two writers that really stand out, both from UK cricket writers and sport journalists, so there's Neville Cardis and E.W. Swanton, who came a bit later. With E.W. Swanton in particular, I gather he really came to be one of Menzies' closest friends over the years. There are any number of books from him that are inscribed beautifully, very warmly, in fact, increasingly warmly over the years. And it's quite interesting to note that in his book about Swanton in Australia with the MCC in 1975, he dedicates to Menzies as the most ardent patron of cricket. And in this book, Menzies writes the forward, and he actually says, this is possibly the last forward I will ever write. And there were a lot of forwards, and that's just another feature of the collection. I think it would be at least in excess of 50 books within the collection that Menzies written the forward for. And I believe that, as far as I could tell, I think that was the last forward he did write, but he chose what a deep place cricket had in his heart. And these sorts of relationships also extended to cricket players. Colin Cowdery, a very famous, the first player to play 100 test matches, became very close with Menzies. Menzies also did a forward for Colin Cowdery. And then, of course, there's Alfred Stafford. He doesn't feature in the collection, but it's just interesting to note that as a great first-class cricketer, Menzies built such a good bond with him that he became his personal driver and then later cabinet officer. So Menzies loved to surround himself with people who played cricket. But he himself was no great sportsman, was he? I mean, this is quite, you read this in stories about his childhood and even well, later I, I, on. I, tend to, I tend to ignore that, Georgina. <laughs> I sort of brush over that. I think maybe he makes up for it with being the most ardent patron of cricket. Indeed. But he really cherished it. And it's quite funny. It was in one of the forwards and he wrote, there's nothing that annoys him more than when he's trying to sit down and watch a game of cricket and then someone will come and sit next to him and try and talk about politics with him. Oh. Dreadful. So, Who would think <laughs> so, Will, cricket is obviously an abiding passion of his, but he was also very interested and really enjoyed poetry and literature and, and that was a pastime of his. Tell me about those books in the collection. Well, the poetry is another fascinating one. 
we can see from a very early age, in fact, Mentis wins a, a prize at, at school for poetry, but you can see it in one of the great items in the collection is the, all of the student magazines, because, of course, as Robert was editor there in 1916, in addition to being involved in just about everything else on campus. Menzies has an extensive number of poems published in these quarterly magazines. How many were you talking? Well, it went roughly over five years, and sometimes there would be multiple poems from Menzies in each one. It was not just poetry he would be writing for the student magazines. He also had some interesting views that he expressed about the role of education, and he got quite upset, for instance, about, I'm, no, I'm getting sidetracked here, Junior, but he got quite upset about people viewing university students as spoiled, lazy, rich kids. But there are views expressed like that in some sort of heated entries, but the most of them is poetry. He seems to be most influenced in Emma with the romantic poets, primarily Wordsworth and Coleridge and Shelley, and they all feature it is probably as big as the cricket collection, the number of poetical works, by all of the people you would tend to expect. But it really featured in his life, not just in his childhood, but in his early years. But he continued to read poetry even when in office. And interestingly, in a lecture in 1961 to the Australian College of Education of Adelaide, so the lecture is called The Challenge to Education. He says, to the students, having prepared my ideas and arguments for an important speech, I find it a good thing the night before to read poetry. Perhaps it's what's given him this great gift for language, but I think he took great solace in it, and there's a question mark over how good his poetry is. I don't think I'm in a position to be a literary critic. <laughs> well, his uh, career wasn't uh, made out of poetry, was it? So, so let's assume that it wasn't, but, but, uh, um, it wasn't a sort of a, a Shelley or Yeats. Uh, no, I, I did really like several of them. I think they're quite beautiful and certainly very strong efforts for a university student. I don't think you would have many people with the courage to write a poem today. <laughs> I, I agree, it's particularly not a, um, well, a such a heartfelt maybe, but, uh, but yes, a very prominent politician. You wouldn't think many of them would take a quiet moment to pen a poem, but maybe it would be something to be recommended. I found it interesting to learn how passionate Menzies becomes about his Scottish heritage. So his parents were Scottish migrants, James and Kate Menzies, and Menzies, as he grows older, he becomes more and more interested in Menzies' clan and sort of elements of what it is to be Scottish and the ideas that came out of Scotland. And I think you were saying there was something like 250 books in the collection on Scottish heritage. (laughs) There are, and of course the Scottish are proud people and Menzies is no exception. I gather it was very prominent in the Scots Club at Melbourne. I'm not sure, perhaps you know Georgina if he was president there, but I think he was for a time. But I wasn't aware at the outset of just how prominent the Menzies family were and are in Scotland. They really are one of the big clans and there's a whole history of Scotland. There's a general reference to Scotland again in itself in this collection but there are particularly personal sentimental ones. There's the Red and White Book of Menzies, the history of the clan Menzies and its chiefs from 1894. Interestingly this has the book plate of former own Athel McGregor who was the former UK Attorney General and Chief Justice of Hong Kong. But this covers all of the detail, and it's quite fascinating to see all of the photos of these old members of the Menzies clan inside it. 
And then there's another quite sentimental item, which is the Menzies Estates, which is actually an auction catalogue. And when they were selling off all of many of the Menzies lands in 1914, so it contains the shootings of Castle Menzies and Foss and Rannoch Lodge, and, and you get beautiful photos and descriptions of all of these Menzies territory. <laughs> <laughs> but I gather he visited the Menzies estates, that area, many times, and I'm not sure to what extent they're all still intact today, but let's hope they are. What about books relating to development of his political philosophy? I mean, that must be another PhD <laughs> in the making there, Will. But, of course, he develops this particularly in the early 1940s when he's in the political wilderness and he starts to give his Forgotten People broadcasts in 1942-43. And then, of course, by 1944, he's bringing together with others the disparate non-Labour forces to form the Liberal Party of Australia. But there's books in the collection that suggest his reading was broad around liberalism and the Enlightenment and liberty and the importance of education to civic life and personal character and national character. What are those types of books? Well, I think in terms of education and what's shaping his political theory, education and liberalism, I would probably say that out of all of the areas in the collection, this is perhaps not the biggest part of the collection, but it's certainly the... Not as big as cricket. Not as big, not as, maybe <laughs> not, but it's certainly the books in the collection that I believe he's engaged the most with. And um, by that you mean underlined, annotated. annotated. Yeah, okay. That's why I guess it makes sense why he gave his collection to the value, because apart from obviously his involvement on the campus, which is well documented, he was involved in absolutely everything and became Chancellor for five years after retiring from politics. And even with his time at office, education was obviously a core focus of the Menzies governments. It really, you can just tell how passionate he was about educational philosophy from a young age. He actually said this interesting book called The Liberties of the Mind by Charles Morgan. When he gives the inaugural Wallaceworth Memorial Lecture in 64, he says, this was my favourite, the best book I've ever read. So as you would expect, underline this extensively. There are some beautiful quotes in it. This one I found quite touching. Immortality is not to be voted at a political meeting. Posterously will not stay in any man's school. We are willful and enchanted children by the grace of God. He whom we love and remember is not he who thrusts upon us his dusty chart of the supreme reality, scored over with his arguments, prejudices and opinions, nor he who will draw a map of heaven on the blackboard and chastise use with scorpions if we will not fall down and worship it, but he who will pull the curtain away from the classroom window and let us see our own heaven with our own eyes. That's quite charming. There's other people that you can really see the train of thought align with Menzies. There's Sir Richard Livingstone, who's a very famous British educationalist and major promoter of the liberal arts. He's got two books in the Menzies collection, Education for a World Adrift and The Future in Education, both from the early 40s. These are both, again, Menzies engaged with extensively. But again, with this passage, I think you could almost think Menzies was saying it, but perhaps he wouldn't say it in such a fashion, but it really carries his ideas. But there's this one. Our education, then, should not be satisfied with imparting the information which a pupil requires equipping him for a vocation, teaching him how to use his mind. It should send him out with a definite spiritual attitude to life and the material and basis for a definite philosophy of living. It should have the aim which it would probably profess today, which it would certainly not disclaim, 
which in general it pursues half-heartedly and ineffectually, and in the university stage, especially in the newer university, wholly abandons, the aim which education had 2,300 years ago. So it's funny if you think that was written in 1941, how, how much worse it may the assessment might have been today. Yeah, but it also shows Menzies' real interest and emphasis on the importance of a liberal education, that sort of classical education you would have had 2,300 years ago, well, yeah. now plus another. And these thinkers who, who were focused on that were really the ones that Menzies drew a lot of his ideas from. And really with these passages as the ones I've just listed, underlined with a heavy pressed pencil, like he's read the best thing he's ever seen. <laughs> but these have clearly shaped him in a broader sense to the thinkers that influenced him. There's a lot of American thinkers he was engaged with. Thomas Jefferson, he has the 18 volumes of his works. Evidence that he read them all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps this is one of the ornamental items. Right. Uh, um, but I believe there are underlinings of some of the Thomas Jefferson and some particular quotes. And there's Abraham Lincoln, the war years. And then apart from education, I would say the other area which he has annotated and engaged with directly is the books on economics. There's a book called Money of All Things from 1928. I think it's interesting when you think about the timing. So he's reading this just before he's about to enter politics. And I don't know if he's trying to get his head around it all, but this book is quite a general book on economic principles. You can see over the years that books focus on economical issues, particularly those you know, connected, as you say, with the Depression and then later on with post-war restructuring from an economic perspective are issues which Menzies looked at very closely. And do you get a sense of where he stands on monetary theory and economic theory? Certainly at the time, the prevailing view was that sort of Keynesian pump priming the economy. Yeah. So, But he was very much against state intervention centralization and centralisation yeah. over, over private enterprise, wasn't he? As far as I can tell, that would be the case. So I thought we might finish our discussion, Will, talking about what you found most interesting in the collection of the 4,700 items. And as you say, not all of them were books, some were photographs, some were notebooks, some were addresses, speeches he'd given and the like. But what was the most interesting thing you found in the collection? You thought, wow, I would never have expected to find this. There's a few things that come to mind. I was a bit shocked when I came across in one of the leather-bound notebooks in the compactus there's with his client fees when from the time when he was a barrister and within it. And this happens throughout the collection a lot, I would say. It has a lot of loose papers with it. One of them is, I don't know why he's put them in this book, maybe it's sort of a private little... A hiding place. Yeah. No one would check <laughs> um, the client's yeah. book. It looks too boring. But, but it's got all sorts of odd things and it's got a, a piece of paper with Morse code. And in this same one, it's got a poem on University of Melbourne letterhead titled Nita Nita, classic Menzies style of poetry. It sort of let me give my heart to thee and <laughs> forever married we shall be or something like that. Right. But, <laughs> but it actually does have a, an engagement request. And so I don't know if this was something he got in his capacity as working as, as editor for the magazine. From looking, it really does seem to be Menzies handwriting, but I don't know how this really fit in. I've tried to research if there's someone called Nita that he fancied, but I had no success. But there are things like that. 
Another really exciting thing I came across was the confidential letters of correspondence with Menzies to Arthur Fadden and Philip McBride. So this was in 1956 and 57. Beautiful when you open it up because... It's a it, bound it, 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 No, no, it's no. not. But it's kind of the most exciting thing about it is it's just small blank folder and you'd think, what is that? Like, can't be anything important in there. So it's a classic example of finding a treasure on a daily basis. And you open it up and these really deep insights into how Menzies' negotiations were going over in Egypt at the time and his personal assessments of Nasser and really deep character assessments of his character about how he looks away and he has annoying habits and really quite critical. I don't think Menzies was having a particularly good time over there. No, Uh, I I don't believe he did. Rather unsuccessful mission. I'm not sure because... Of course, most of the papers were given to the the National Archives. But there are beautiful things that come up again and again, and there are letters that are enclosed within books that come up again and again. And so there are, to some extent, personal papers which are enclosed within the collection in various ways. There's also a, a nice cablegram, which is on a similar note, about the prospect of Japan invading Hong Kong in World War II. There are some nice pieces of political correspondence. Another, perhaps not shocking as such, but possibly one of my favourite items in the collection, or actually also related to Japan, is this beautiful, absolutely stunning Japanese photo album for when Menzies went to Japan. I believe it was in early 50s, just following the the Second World War. And while it was controversial at the time to get involved with relations with the Japanese and there were all sorts of debates about how powerful all of the world should let them be and how fast or if they should be allowed to become economically successful and be involved, be a stronger power to fight off the threat of communism. But Menzies undertook a trip there and there's the most beautiful photo album with beautiful captions of everywhere he visited in Japan He looks like he's really enjoying that trip. The album itself plays beautiful musical tunes. Perhaps those children's books, but I've never seen, especially, it's quite stunning for a book from the 50s to be working. It's still playing its musical tunes um, when you open it. He Um, would have looked happier than when he visited uh, uh, India. (laughs) (laughs) He apparently didn't enjoy his time. Well, thank you so much. That was a lovely audio tour through the Menzies collection here at the University of Melbourne. And also uh, lovely to hear your reflections on the last 18 months playing with the books. And we look forward, of course, to the development of, of our digital hub so you can access all these books virtually through our new website that we're developing and really understand the context of the books, the personalities involved, the interests and the issues and the influences on Menzies and how that informed his worldview and, of course, informed his governments in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. So thank you very much, William. Thank you so much, Georgina. I hope I haven't spread myself too thin over the four and a half thousand books. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.